I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 11 to 18, but I'm going to read from verse 11 to 22 to end off the chapter. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Samuel was excited about my preaching this morning. (laughs) All right, let's read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we look to your word now, we pray that you would illumine our our minds, that Lord, you would stir our hearts to marvel at the truth that is here in Ephesians chapter 2. That it would cause us to cherish Christ all the more and also that we would cherish peace with one another all the more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thousands of years ago, on an ordinary night, there were shepherds keeping watch over their sheep. And what was, from all appearances, a normal night, something extraordinary happened. The night sky was lit up with glorious angelic beams. So great was their splendor that these shepherds were overcome with fear, for it was the glory of God that shone around them. But these angels proclaimed a message to these shepherds, and the message was this, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
This was the message. Good news, great joy, and peace among those whom God is pleased, for a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. God declared to the shepherds that evening through his angelic messengers that he would, through this child, bring peace. And this wasn't all of a sudden new in the sense that the Old Testament had also prophesied of this reality. In Micah 5, a a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, we learn that, that one of the things he will do in his coming is that he will bring peace. Micah 5, 4 to 5 says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Or you think, of course, of Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, over 2,000 years ago, the angels proclaimed to the shepherds that this Savior, Jesus Christ, would bring peace. But my question is, where is it? Where is this peace that was spoken of? No one in their right mind would remotely define the last 2,000 years of human history as a time of peace. If anything, it's been a time of conflict and hostility with short little moments of peace. Our current day is full of hostile hostility and conflict. We could talk about the conflict and hostility between nations. I mean, think about this. In the 20th century alone, There were over 160 million people killed due to war. And that's a conservative number. Now you want to know how many Torontos that is? That that is the population of Toronto? In order to reach 160 million people, you would need 53 Torontos. That is the population of Toronto would have to be killed 53 times in order to reach 160 million And friends, the conflict isn't going away. When one peace treaty is signed, another conflict breaks out. There are continual tensions and continual wars between nations. But there are also rising tensions within nations. We see the continual rise of political conflict happening in the world and most definitely south of us in the United States. The conflict is growing and increasing, and we can see the same thing in our own nation, maybe not with the same kind of drama south of the border, but it's here as well. And it's not just political conflict, there's racial conflict, there's conflict of values happening in our society, there's family conflict, the breakdown of the family. Every sphere of life is full of hostility and conflict. So where's the peace that God promised that evening on the first Christmas to the shepherds? 
Has God's word to the shepherds failed? Of course not. You see, if you look at the passage in Luke, the angels declared that the peace that God would bring would be bestowed not globally, but particularly amongst a a specific people. Who are the specific people, according to the angels? To those whom God is pleased with. Now, of course, the scriptures do speak of a day when Jesus will establish peace globally over all the nations. Peace, righteousness, and justice will define his everlasting kingdom, and the whole earth earth will be covered in his peace. This, This idea of shalom and wholeness, harmony. But in the In between his first coming at Christmas and his future second coming, God's peace is given to those with whom he is well pleased. Who are the those with whom he is well pleased? Who are they? Well, the scriptures affirm all throughout that those who have favor with God are his new covenant redeemed people, men and women from of faith from every nation, tribe and tongue. See, the place in which God's peace has been bestowed is his new new redeemed people, men and women saved by grace through faith, through faith, the church of Jesus Christ. And this is why I want to draw our attention to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18 this morning, because it's here where Paul theologically unpacks the peace that Christ has established in his coming into the world. And this peace he has established has happened within his blood-bought church, the redeemed of God. In other words, the place in which peace is meant to manifest in our world is amongst the gathered people of God. It's amongst the followers of Jesus, blood-bought sinners saved by grace, the bride of Christ. And we see this in Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. Now, it's important that I give you some context to this book uh, in order to understand more deeply the passage we're looking at this morning. The church in Ephesus, followers of Jesus, uh, that is the followers of Jesus in Ephesus, uh, they were made up of both Jews and Gentiles who had believed upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so you had Jewish and Gentile Christians. These were the people that made up the church. And in the first chapter, the, the first 10 verses of, of, and the first 10 verses of the second chapter, the Apostle Paul is articulating some of the most glorious theological truths in all of the scriptures. He's speaking to the whole church in chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of chapter 2. He's speaking to both Jew and Gentile. He articulates in chapter 1 how these Christians, both Jew and Gentile, being united to Christ, have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. They were predestined by God to receive adoption, that is to become children of God. They have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of their sins, the lavishing of God's grace upon them. They've obtained an eternal inheritance. They've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of their inheritance. And that's just chapter one, and I didn't even mention everything. 
And then you come to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and Paul continues to articulate in greater detail what God actually did when he saved these Jewish and Gentile believers from their sins. God, in his mercy and grace, resurrected them spiritually and raised them up with Christ in the heavenly places. And he has set them apart as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of being a people who are zealous and committed to good works. But all of this, all of this was God's miraculous doing. He alone was the one who saved these Christians in Ephesus. And if you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, all of what Paul described here is also true of you. And now we come to verse 11 of chapter 2, and it's here where Paul continues to theologically unpack what God has done through Jesus Christ. But Paul begins to directly address the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. And what we see is who they were before they were saved, before they were saved by Jesus Christ. And with this description that Paul gives of the Gentiles, we see the crisis of fallen sinful humanity. That's the first point this morning, the crisis of fallen sinful humanity. Look at verse 11 to 12. Therefore, that is in light of what what I've just said, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. That is, that is, you Gentiles who are called the uncircumcision, which, is a, which was a derogatory term used by the, by the circumcised, the Jewish people. So you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That is the Jewish people, who is made, which, is made in flesh, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This was what the Gentile world was before they had encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now when Paul says the Gentiles, what he means by that is simply everyone who isn't Jewish. For the Jews, humanity was broken down into two categories. You had Israel, God's covenant people, and the Gentile pagan world. And Paul's reminding these Gentile believers who they once were. They were separated from Christ. That is, they didn't know Jesus Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel was, was God's chosen nation to dwell amongst and to reign over. They were a theocracy. The Gentiles didn't have that blessing. They were also strangers to the covenants of promise. That is, they didn't know of the covenants that God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and King David. They were completely ignorant of such things. But he also says they were a hopeless people and a godless people. They had no hope and they were without God in this world. This is who they were before Christ. Separated alienated, strangers, hopeless, and godless. 
And this is still an accurate description of the human race without Jesus Christ. You see, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you haven't experienced his salvation, this is the description of who you are without Christ. Separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless, and godless. In fact, if you jump back just a little further to verse 1 of chapter 2, we get a further description of what human beings are without the salvation of Jesus. And it's not a pretty picture. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. That doesn't mean that you were remotely sick, that you somehow had a little bit of problems and you just needed a little bit of medicine. No, no. You were spiritually a corpse before God. Dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That is, we were enslaved to our own fleshly desires and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, that's the description of every human being in their sinful state. It's not very flattering, but it's true. The unsaved world wakes up and gets dressed and puts on makeup on a corpse. See, our human experience confirms this everywhere we look, especially when we look in the mirror. The human race is a fallen race. A sinful race. And none of us are exceptions to that rule. We like to convince ourselves that we are the exceptions, but the sinful desires manifested in others are the same sinful desires that reside in our own, in our own souls. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn so powerfully stated, if only it were all so simple... If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? See, this is the crisis of fallen humanity. And this was who these Gentiles were, and this is who we are apart from Jesus Christ. But something drastically happened to these Gentiles that Paul is addressing. They experienced the peacemaking Savior. Look at verse 13. But now, but now, that word there, the but, I call that the gospel but. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So these Gentiles were at one time far off, but now they've been brought near. That is, they were once far off, separated from God, but now they've been brought near to God and his people. See, this spatial language is common language in the Old Testament to differentiate between Israel and the Gentile pagan world. 
So for example, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is, is calling the people to obedience to God, and one of the reasons is based upon the fact that God has drawn near to Israel, as he says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? See, this idea of nearness and farness is not so much spatial, but spiritual. God was spiritually in relationship near to Israel. It was to Israel that God said, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell amongst you. This was language only for the Jewish people. But now Paul says to these Gentile believers that you who were once far off, that is separated from any real relationship to God, you've now been brought near. You've you've now been brought into relationship with God. You're not just guessing anymore who God is. You're not just trying to to look up into the night sky and and figure out who God is. No, no. God has revealed yourself to him. He's, He's brought you near to him. How has this happened? Well, Paul says in verse 13, by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. You see, sin separates us from God. That's what it does in its very nature. But through Jesus' atoning death on the cross, we who were once separated from God can now draw near. Because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from our sin and we can now draw near to the sinless, pure, and holy God. But I want you to notice something. Two words that are very important in verse 13. It's these two words, in Christ. In Christ. Paul says to these Gentile believers, but now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near. Those two words are just as important as the blood of Christ. You see, the blood of Christ speaks of the historical, redemptive moment in which, in which Jesus died as a sin offering. But in Christ, in Christ, those two words speak to our personal union to Christ when we experience the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and by faith are united to Christ. Both are essential for any person to draw near to God. We need the blood of Christ to deal with our sin, and we need the personal union with Christ in order to actually have relationship with God. In fact, if you read through chapters 1 and 2, there is, I believe, over 11 references to the idea of union with Christ in the language of in Christ in him and with him. These Gentile believers have been brought near to God because the blood of Christ has ransomed them from their sins and because they have been united to Christ through conversion. And it's at this point where Paul declares in verse 14, for he, that is Christ himself, is our peace. Now when he says our peace, He's no longer just speaking to the Gentiles. He's stating that in light of the Gentiles coming to faith and being brought near to God, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles have Christ as their peace. And what Paul does next is theologically articulate how Christ has become the peace 
of both believing Jews and Gentiles. And what he explains through verses 14 to 18 is that Christ, through his drawing the Gentiles into relationship with him, has one brought peace between people, that is Jew and Gentile, and secondly, he has brought peace between people and God. So first, let's look at the peace that Christ has established between people. The reason Paul says that Christ is our peace is because in Christ, both Jew and Gentile have been reconciled to one another. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace. The idea, you can, really, the idea there is peacemaker. For he himself is our peacemaker, who has made us, that is Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What has Christ done? Well, he has made both Jew and Gentile one, that is, he has united them together as one new people, and he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And he's done this in his flesh, that is, through his death. Now, when Paul speaks of this dividing wall of hostility, he's most likely using specific imagery from the temple to capture what this hostile relationship was like between both Jew and Gentile. The temple had a Gentile court, which allowed God-fearing Gentiles to enter, but this court had a large wall that separated the Gentiles from the rest of the temple, where the Jews were allowed to enter. And there was an inscription placed there by the Jews that warned the Gentiles that if they went beyond their designated court, they would face most certain death. Not trial, but death. You see, there was real enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles, especially the Jews toward the Gentiles. They looked down on the Gentiles with a moral superiority. They saw the Gentiles as unclean dogs. Remember, most of Israel's suffering was done at the hands of the Gentile nations. There was a real hatred on the part of the Jews toward the Gentiles. William Barclay gives a good summary of the relationship when he says, The Jews had immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. There was no love lost between the Gentiles and the Jews. And yet Paul says here that Christ has become the peacemaker, the reconciler of both Jew and Gentile. He has made them one. He's broken down this dividing wall of hostility through his flesh. The imagery is powerful. You have this, this great wall and, and on one side stands the Gentiles and the other side stands the Jews. 
And Christ, through his death, has torn this wall down. He has smashed it to smithereens. And he's done this in his flesh. That's what he's done. But the question is, how? How, through his death, has he actually done this? What happened in his death that explains why this wall of hostility and division has been torn down? Well, the answer lies in verse 15. There are two things that Christ has done in destroying the wall of division and hostility between Jew and Gentile. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what he's done. But now he tells us how he's done it. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So the first thing he's done in tearing down this dividing wall of hostility is he's put to an end, he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. You see, what Paul's referring to here are the the rites of ceremony and sacrifices that allowed the Jews to draw near to the temple. When Christ offered his flesh up upon the cross, he made these ceremonies and ordinances which separated Jew and Gentile and deepened their hostility. He made them irrelevant, so to speak. This this barrier of ceremonial law which kept both Jew and Gentile apart was in many ways the reason for their hostility. And and Christ through his flesh has destroyed that reality. Because Christ's death makes all fleshly distinctions irrelevant for religious privilege. Which means in the new covenant community, made up of both Jew and Gentile, it's irrelevant whether you're circumcised or whether you're Jewish or whether you followed the food, the food laws. What matters now is whether or not you're in Christ, united to him by faith. And so he's destroyed this hostility by abolishing the rituals that separated both Jew and Gentile which the Jews often used to demonstrate their moral superiority. And he's abolished these ceremonies by fulfilling them, because all of those ceremonies are fulfilled in Christ. Now, he's not only abolishing something, but he's also creating something new. That's what you see in the second part of verse 15. On the one hand, he's destroyed this dividing wall by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances. And on the other hand, he has created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. You see, through Christ's sacrificial death, he has created in himself, there's that in him again, right? In himself, one new humanity made up of both Jew and Gentile in place of the two, so establishing peace between Jew and Gentile. You see, what Paul's articulating here is that Jesus Christ has created a new redeemed humanity through his redemptive work on the cross. See, according to the scriptures, 
there are actually only two human races. The one race is the fallen human race made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The other human race is the redeemed human race made up of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You see, Christ's death purchased a new humanity made from the old humanity, from the old humanity, humanity, but better and transformed by the power of God through the working of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there's the in Christ again. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul has reconciled these Jews and Gentiles by redeeming them and transforming them into new creatures so that they have now become one while still remaining Jewish and Gentile. He has brought them together as one redeemed people under under the lordship of Christ. No longer is their relationship defined by conflict and hostility, but peace and love, because Christ has united them together. You see, they have both tasted and experienced God's saving work and forgiveness. They have both experienced the mercy and love of God in Christ Jesus. They both now share in God's divine nature. See, the saving work of Jesus has united them together as brothers and sisters. And that's just not superficial language. When when we call each other brother and sister, there's real meaning to those words. I don't just call random people that I know brother or sister. I only call my biological family brother or sister and my blood-bought family. This is how Christ has become their peace. And brothers and sisters, this is still true today for all of us. We have been reconciled to one another through the blood of Christ. We have been united as Christ's redeemed people, and we each share and participate in this new humanity. The blood of Christ is able to overcome any hostility between two individuals or groups. Christ and his redemptive work is able to overcome political hostility between individuals. It's able to overcome ethnic hostility between individuals. The gospel of Christ has enabled Jews and Arabs, blacks and whites, to become brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ, through his work on the cross, has established peace and reconciliation between people. This is why he has become our peace. But Christ has done more than just establishing peace between people. Paul also articulates that Christ is our peace because he has established peace between us and God, between people and God. As he says in verse 16, and might reconcile us, that is Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. See, the scriptures affirm and teach with explicit clarity 
that not only do we as humans have conflict with one another, but that we fundamentally are in conflict with God. There is a hostility between us and God. And this hostility was not started by God. It was started by us when we rebelled and turned away from him and his ways and turned to our sin. You see, the fundamental reason there is so much hostility and conflict in this world is because we have rejected the God who created us, the God who is the God of peace. And I think one of the reasons we experience so much hostility and conflict in this world is because God, through all of the conflict we face in this created world, is shouting from the heavens that we are not right with our Maker. We are, as Paul puts it in verse 3 of chapter 2, children of wrath by nature. See, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is hostility between humanity and its maker. The dark clouds of heaven rest over the fallen human race. We have created conflict with God by our defiance and our sin. But Paul says here that Jesus has reconciled us to God through the cross. How so? Because through the cross, Jesus bore the hostility of heaven in our place. God placed all his righteous hostility against sinful humanity upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God's righteous indignation has been justly satisfied. As Wesley's famous hymn declares, he quenched the wrath of hostile heaven. You see, in Christ dying on the cross, the righteous hostility of God has been satisfied so that every sinner who but repents and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ will be reconciled to God. Now, that's how Christ in his death deals with the hostility of God. But how does he deal with our hostility towards God? Because it's not just God's hostility, it's that we have hostility against God in our sin. So how does Christ deal with our hostility? Well, when you and I see the love of God revealed in the suffering of Jesus, by the Spirit of God, our hostility and rage against our Maker is melted to love. See, when we hold up our fists and our weapons against God, but then when God says, look at my beloved son, look at how he has suffered for you, it causes the hardened sinner to lower his rage and his weapons against God. For it's in the cross where, yes, we do see God's hatred of sin, but also his unfathomable love towards sinners because the cross was God's plan in saving and creating a new humanity through Jesus Christ in Christ's death God's hostility has been satisfied and our hostility has turned to love toward God who pointed his hostile wrath against his own son instead of us who were deserving of it 
And because Christ has dealt with both the hostility of heaven and our hostility, the result is reconciliation between us and God. This was the achievement of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus Christ is our peace. He has reconciled us to our fellow man and he has reconciled us to our creator. And it's not just some peace treaty where you agree to no longer fight, but you don't really love each other. No, no. This reconciliation has established unity and oneness and love between each other and love with our Creator. And this peace which Christ has established was preached, as Paul says here, to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. That is, it's for anyone who would but come. This is the peace that Christ has established. As John Stott says, Christ crucified has thus brought into being nothing less than a new, united human race, united in itself and united to its creator. This is the peacemaking Savior that we see here in these verses. Now I want to just briefly look quickly at verse 18 in order to see the result of Christ's peacemaking work. What does Paul say in verse 18? For through him, that is through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here is the result of what Christ has done. Both Jew and Gentile, through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Spirit, have been granted access to God the Father. Our relationship with God has been restored. We now have access, ability, through Christ's redeeming work and the Holy Spirit's regenerating power to have access, fellowship, communion with God the Father. The triune God has enabled us to draw near because hostility is no more and peace has been established. We can now have relationship with the eternal triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's all because of the peace-making Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now very briefly, I want to ask, what are some implications in light of these truths? The first is this. Our bond in Christ should be the most important bond that we have in life. If Christ has redeemed us and united us together as his new covenant people, there is no relationship more important than the bond that we have in Christ. Which means that our bond in Jesus should be stronger than any earthly bond we have. You see, if you find that your bond is stronger with people who share your political persuasion rather than your bond in Christ, then I would argue politics has become an idol. If your bond is stronger with those who share your same ethnicity, then I would argue that your ethnicity has become an idol in your life. The bond that should have preeminence in your life is the bond that you have with your fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. I mean, think about this. As a follower of Jesus, I have more in common, 
I have a stronger bond with Christians in places like Indonesia and North Korea than I do with any Canadian who doesn't know Jesus Christ. If I were to fly to Indonesia or sneak into North Korea, I know that there would be Christians who I've never met who would welcome me into their home. My father-in-law just recently did that at Thanksgiving. A random Australian showed up at the chapel at the airport. He was a believer and he stayed with them for a week. That's weird. But that's what Jesus does. He creates a bond between Christians that is unshakable, that is the most important bond that you can have in this life. You see, I have a stronger bond with any born-again Christian in Russia than I do with any Canadian who may share my political convictions but not my Christian faith. I have a stronger bond with any born-again Christian than I do with any biological family that doesn't share my faith as well. Christ shed his blood not only for me to have an eternal relationship with God, but also for me to have an eternal relationship with people who I would never, who I would never have a relationship if it were not for the blood of Christ. Think about this, brothers and sisters. Those you are sitting beside, those in this room, you will be in relationship with for all eternity. So you better work on it now. Our bond in Christ should be the most important bond in our lives. Secondly, because Christ has died to establish peace between us, we must be committed to maintain peace and unity as the church of Jesus Christ. This is precisely Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 4, just just two chapters over in verses 1 to 6, where he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then he begins to unpack what that worthiness looks like. And it's not theological perfection and understanding. What he says is this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and then he says this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Christ has purchased this unity and this bond of peace that we have, but we as Spirit-filled Christians must be eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, it seems to me that there are many Christians who are far more eager to divide the body of Christ rather than being eager to maintain the unity of the body. And it's deeply troubling. See, when we allow tertiary issues to divide us, we are in some sense suggesting that those issues are more important than the blood of Christ that has brought us together in the bond of peace. There is a reason why the scriptures have such strong condemnation for divisive people within the church. 
Because a divisive person is, whether intentionally or unintentionally, trying to undermine what the blood of Christ accomplished by uniting within himself a new people defined by peace and love. See, is the blood of Christ that has reconciled and united us together not more important than our differences over politics? Is the peace that that the blood of Christ has purchased not more important over our differences regarding medical procedures and mask wearing? Is the unity that the blood of Christ has secured not more important to us whether or not your brother or sister checks all the same theological boxes as you? And I'm not saying that theological doctrine is not important. But it does concern me when I see Christians who always seem ready and eager to pick a theological fight rather than than being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember this, brothers and sisters. That Christian brother or sister who you may disagree with over COVID responses or politics or secondary theological issues. Remember that brother or sister in Christ has the same access to God the Father as you do and has been purchased by the same blood that you've been purchased by. Christ has become our peace and in a world full of conflict and strife. I pray that we, as the new, redeemed humanity, would be known for our peace and our unity around Jesus Christ. There is reason, there is a reason why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came into this world born as a frail baby, So that through his redemptive work, we would have peace with one another and with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our peace. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here this morning who still does not know the peace of Christ, that, God, you would grant that to them. That you would open their eyes, bring them to life, and to see Christ, the beautiful Savior, the Redeemer of our souls, the one who brings peace. And, Lord, if we as your children have not been walking in peace, Forgive us and cause us to take action that we would be eager to maintain the peace that we have in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we now have peace with you. We have access to you. We have fellowship with you and communion with you. We praise you and we thank you for all that Christ has done. And we pray this in his name. Amen.